0: Hello there and welcome to another episode of Ruben's Podcast, a show where I speak to people about their lives over the last decade and the lessons they've learned along the way. On today's show, I'm speaking with Ahona. I met Ahona back in university in 2010. She studied English in college and was by far one of the best singers I've had the chance to listen to in person. Over the last decade, Ahona has followed a path in academia, getting a master's in anthropology and becoming a teacher, which she absolutely loved. She's now pursuing a Ph.D. while also trying to figure out the space music has in her life. In fact, if you wait till the end, there's a little surprise. But we start off at the rather interesting place, which got me really thinking why she listens to the podcast and how it's led to some interesting realizations. But before we begin, there's some amazing news I must share with you. Ruben's podcast is ranked 116 in the category of personal journals in India. At some point, you were even in the top 100. A big thank you for tuning in and listening to the show every week. Leaving a rating, a review, or simply following the podcast helps me do better on these charts and reach more people. So if you haven't already, I'd love you to do that. With that, let's get into the conversation. When, when I asked Ahona to send me a, a voice note about the stuff she's been doing over the last, like, you know, whatever, 10 years, the first thing she <laughs> said was that the podcast, like she of course loved the podcast. It, it's amazing, I know that. But what you said was super interesting that it you were able to resonate with a lot of people um, and sort of everybody would believe that after college gets over, people diverge. But you mentioned that somehow you felt that you were converging. Like talk to me about, like explain that to me and, and why do you enjoy the podcast so much?
1: Yeah, as in the, the podcast, I didn't expect to feel as attached to it as I ended up feeling. but. There's, I don't know, I, I think maybe I'm particularly, I feel particularly close to voice and just to be able to hear the sound of voices of some of these people yeah. um, had, was, was really kind of nourishing in, in some ways. So primarily that, but then over the kind of um, episodes, um, I had a kind of uh, strange experience because um, some of the things that I was hearing say, for example, Somya's episode about how she was kind of navigating a PhD in the U.S. Or um, CD, some of the things CD said about sort of thinking through questions of of mental health and, and how he kind of figured stuff out around it. Or, yeah. or some of the things Mansa and her amazing, amazing episode said about what she was interested um, vis-a-vis rural life in India really kind of struck a chord and, and I was like, shit, these people's lives sound uncannily similar to mine. Mm. And uh, yet I wouldn't have thought of us as sort of connected in that sense while we were in college yeah. um, or, or sort of even aspiring for the same things, even though we were all yeah. friends and we kind of met each other every day. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was strange. And so the tone of your podcast in some senses has been this kind of nostalgic, kind of catching up after we diverted from this common meeting place, but I've had a kind of inverse experience of mm. thinking, shit, I didn't, I didn't know so much about the people that I spent three super intense, uh, years with.
0: Yeah. And, um, and is it more about, is it more about you did not know them when they were in college or you didn't know them now that, you know, 10 years later on what they've become?
1: As in, I don't I don't think the things that any of these people are doing right now came out of the blue as in these all these are obviously aspects of them that that grew into this and i yeah. I can say that because it was the same with me and and I'm sure I didn't I, I, I know that I wasn't able to share that side of me with these people yeah. um and 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 I kind of it became a slightly more serious thought about how it was possible for people to kind of live so close to each other and literally Mm. like eat and sleep and shit and piss (laughs) next to each other and and still be so oblivious to each other's lives and just in terms of myself everyone I guess thought of me as this owner who was jumping around in some lawn or singing (laughs) in some corridor but like Fuck man, Ruben, I, I mean, I spent the first three months of my time in college convincing myself that I was dying of cancer.
0: What, what does that mean? Get
1: into it right now because it's not only my story to tell, I guess. But there was a time at the end of first year in which things had gone gotten so bad, and mm. I'd hurt people so much that I had kind of quite seriously considered um, leaving and mm. and applying somewhere else just because mm. of the situation I was in. And 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 you know, this was so huge and. And my closest friends didn't have a clue. Yeah. And I managed to kind of live a life. And I was genuinely happy as well and having a great time. And so it's it's strange, you know, how such disparate sort of aspects of our lives yeah. can coexist. And yeah. then you kind of, I'm sorry, I'm kind of teaching a slightly <laughs> morbid uh, route. But no. then you kind of hear about, uh, say, you know, the sexual assault cases and stuff. And yeah. you're like, fuck. I was, um, you know, I think I was at the same party or with this person right after and, and having a great time and, and it was possible for me to do so without having a clue and and that really got me thinking quite hard about how even in our genuine kind of lives and friendships and yeah. sort of coexistences together, it's possible to still remain so opaque to each, each other and so it's possible to have on one hand this intense kind of belonging to this community yeah. but at the same time, also have like these huge chasms separating us. Yeah. So that was a slightly unexpected insight from the
0: podcast. (laughs) So, so, so quickly coming back to to our journey and and you were kind enough to send me a a voice note. So you studied English in in, in college, Um, you graduated, decided to go get a a degree in anthropology and I'm very curious to know, you know, what, what anthropology really is. I've heard this term and I have a broad sense, but it's a complicated word. Uh, so you went to study anthropology and there you mentioned, and you went to London to do that. And sort of, you mentioned in your voice note that that had a sort of a very, like it affected how you thought about relationships, about society, about, about just social interactions and being, uh, and sort of the experience in London shaped you in in a lot of ways. So I'm very curious to like touch upon what, what that experience was like and, and what really shaped or what really changed. Right. You essentially finished that, you know, came back to Ashoka, became a teacher and then started sort of this experience wherein you eventually ended up teaching people who are older than you. (laughs) Like that's that's crazy. Um, And eventually sort of through that experience, realized that you really, really like teaching. And then, you know, towards the end, I'd what you're doing right now is you then decided to do a PhD in anthropology uh, and somehow connected it to, to music, which I think everybody who knew you in college would associated you with either theater or actually more importantly, music. So sort of like a full circle to, to do music again. Um, and that's sort of what I think we'll, we'll talk about in the next, you know, maybe like, I don't know how long this goes, but maybe we'll try to keep it for, for like capital at the hour. But I think a good place to start is like, explain to me, like, how does someone go from studying English to anthropology? And like, how do you describe anthropology to a five year old?
1: yeah wow but first so been, it's such a privilege and also quite surreal in some ways to hear the last 10 years of your life be kind of narrated <laughs> so seamlessly and suddenly you know there's this great coherence to your to your life when actually in the living of it it was quite fraught each of I these can decisions. imagine um but but thanks that's a that's a really lovely question and and this really it's true that the shift from um literature to anthropology, which actually came to me quite intuitively, was, was also quite shaping and telling of how I was kind of re-understanding um, the world, At I guess, at, at, at that point. Um, I came to college to study English because it was my favorite subject. I had a great English teacher in school, and I was very moved when she used to speak about poetry. And thankfully, my parents weren't forcing me to kind of pick up something that rendered me immediately employable. So I kind of had the luxury to do what I loved and there was also kind of at the same time quite a battle in terms of whether I'd study in India or go to America because I had this mm. kind of scholarship to to study in America and I refused. I said, there's no way I'm going. And that was more on a kind of gut feel. Everyone in my family thought that it was because of some boyfriend that I wanted to stay <laughs> with. Was that, that wasn't the case. But
0: wh- uh, why did you not decide to go to America? Like that's like scholarship and the US?
1: I think what I really wanted to do then and I was able to articulate it only later was get a sense of what it was to live an adult independent life in India and that was very very valuable and perhaps the greatest learning I had from my undergrad as in now that I'm in America and in a university I see the the undergrads who kind of arrive from India straight out of their mother's air-conditioned wounds <laughs> on one one-way flight um, and and I feel and they come and they think and then they become like some president of some India society and they think they're kind of representative and that they have a sense of, you know, this community that they're claiming to come from, but they're so but they don't, right? And yeah. and and, and I, I know I would have been like that. I would have gone and said something over smart about oh Indian culture, Indian music, this, that, and just been like so oblivious to the things that I was able to learn by staying. Yeah. Um and I think that if I didn't stay in India for my undergrad, I would have had quite a kind of caricaturized understanding of different communities, what religious different worlds, were, what, cl- what class was, what caste was. And so uh, even the little community we had in college taught me so much just yeah. about life here. Yeah. Um, but to go back to your question, um, English kind of allowed me to to revel in in poetry and theater and and i loved reading and writing always and we had this these great um teachers but by the time i got to my third year i was kind of beginning to crave a kind of mode of thought that was slightly more grounded in everyday Mm. life rather than you know the fantasies of some set of authors many many centuries away and, um, and you know, there's this kind of activist impulse that comes over you at 2021. And so yeah. I used to tell the people who used to ask, oh, I want to be closer to the ground and reality and, you know, I want to study anthropology because it's more about real life, et cetera, et cetera. And, and at the same time, it, I knew that it wasn't an entirely flippant mm. need. Uh, because I was, also, I was also very interested in the study of kinship and how ideas of inheritance and obligation come to be kind of negotiated within the family structure. And so the anthroposis that I was looking up seemed to be interested, at least in the tone of that set of questions. And so I started right. applying and, and, and thankfully that worked out. And so I went to LSE to do a master's in anthropology. And it's, and it's really after spending a few years in anthropology that I was able in some senses to come back to literature and realize that, hey, this is just another technique or route into the same set of questions and and really sort of fiction and forms of close reading that literature kind of train you in um, do offer quite a solid way of finding a footing in in
0: real life. So moving to anthropology actually allowed me to understand literature better, I think. So so quickly, how would you describe anthropology? Because for the longest time, I didn't understand like anthropology and sociology and Sociopology uh, or something. <laughs> what is anthropology? What the
1: hell is that? I think no, that, that,
0: that's nothing. That's nothing. But yeah, what I is anthropology?
1: Oh, I don't know how to explain this. And the definition I'll offer will obviously be incomplete. But as of now, hmm. the most compelling um, thought I have about anthropology is that it has to do with a systematic methodological study of how it is that we live our lives alongside other people, hmm. but also other things, both animate and inanimate, um, okay. and figure out ways to kind of continue that repeated coexistence on an everyday basis, spiritually, materially, through religion, through culture, through politics, through economics, uh, and so there are lots of routes into arriving at um, at what the social is. But anthropology, I think, from what I understand so far, is primarily invested in the question of the social. Um, the other amazing thing about anthropology that really brings me back to it again and again is that methodologically it's the only discipline that forces you to to go to the place that you're making claims about mm. right so you're not allowed by definition to sit in a library and make up theories about okay. this place and that place and this person and that group of this yeah. tribe in this place right? Like, <laughs> if you want to say something about that then you have to go live with them, right? And so mm. that's that's ethnography or fieldwork, which is Got the it. crucial methodology, which is the real game changer in the discipline, um, I think, uh, because it really shows you that you know nothing until you have sort of physically coexisted with as yeah. it, and within the forms of life that you are trying to understand. And there's no better
0: way maybe. Yeah.
1: But anthropology does it. So it's not just a kind of case study that I'm going to figure out in order to provide an example for some theoretical idea I have. So there's this real kind of fluid back and forth between theory, practice, the conceptual, the empirical, that really kind of draws me to the discipline and makes me feel like it's important and really yeah. legitimate
0: in the world. Yeah. Now, now that you say that, now it makes so much sense to me why you said that you could see a lot of commonalities with say, Mansa's podcast. Um, so, so yeah, it makes a lot of sense Wherein she, I think she said that for you to really understand somebody, you have to go live with them and experience the same challenges that they face. And only then will you actually understand, you know, the problem really, really well. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely
1: not just challenges, but also what their forms of pleasures are right it's, yeah. and the problem with this kind of anthropological fieldwork sometimes becomes that you're always studying sort of communities poorer or le- or disadvantaged comparatively and so then the whole study becomes like oh my god look at how these people are so disadvantaged and so the true kind of test for me is to also be able to share in their greatest joys and and, and pleasures and so my project is focused on um, the aesthetic lives and the, the experiences of beauty that the communities I work with.
0: Uh, what, what, what someone like have you seen anybody doing like an anthropological study of like South Delhi? Like how does South Delhi really operate? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Of course there are loads. In fact, there's a friend yeah. of mine with whom I used to chat about uh doing a project on the brokers in, in North Campus. <laughs> it is I think mean, it will be fascinating. <laughs> yeah. But of course there's lots of there's lots of urban anthropology and urban anthropology is a very important um strand in the discipline. Um and actually the rural is being neglected and sort of being quite stereotyped as this site of disaster. And yeah. so part of my project is to go there and say that, no, it's not really just <laughs> catastrophe here. You know? There's lots of, that's really as difficult and as wonderful as life anywhere else.
0: Yeah. So we'll come back to your current stuff when we talk about your PhD later. But you mentioned that this entry into anthropology sort of shaped and especially the experience in London shaped, you know, shaped in crucial ways in the words you used. Explain to me wow. what, 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 what happened <laughs> in that time in London when you were sort of immersing yourself in this more grounded way of, of thought and, 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 and like study.
1: Wow. I think I made it sound like that year was much more important than it uh, really was. It was a great year, but it yeah. wasn't um, singularly life changing as an every year after that has been as well, but it was really my kind of entry point into the discipline. Hmm. Um, it also taught me what a life, like the everyday life of reading and writing was, I didn't grow up in a family of academics, so i would never seen like people sitting with their books just in, in general. So yeah. it really took me, it, it took me sort of being away from from home and home-like situations to be able to kind of re-characterize myself in that way and sort of make this new set of um, habits um, yeah. that were hard to do uh, initially. And it also kind of, uh, that year taught me that, uh, hey, like my true... High comes from being in class, and I guess I always <laughs> knew this about myself because, but because I was always so busy like doing one some singing or some dancing, yeah. well, not dancing, I can't dance <laughs> in my life, but uh, some theater, theater and all I was like, my image didn't allow academics to be at the center of my life, mm. uh, and it, so it took that distance and going away to London to be able to even admit to myself that no, this is what I find uh most exciting,
0: yeah, um. And, and because, what, do you, what does it mean that you get most joy? Like, like describe that to me. Or what do you mean that I get the most joy in class? Yeah,
1: yeah. no, it's true. As in for me, teaching and, and being in class is like being on stage sometimes. And um, mm. so I get my stage high from here now. Um, and I used to rely on music and the shake sock and things for it. Yeah. But I feel like now I've kind of found my form here rather than, you know, everything I was trying there. And... So I think this would take me like into say my relationship with music and yeah. the arts, et cetera, while growing up and in, in college as in, I sort of learned music quite rigorously and seriously yeah. since I was like two and a half, three and all my life. Um, and yet, yet I always knew, I think that I would never, never become a professional musician. It's mm. I just felt like that life would, defeat the purpose of my relationship with music well, why do you say that i'd seen professional musicians growing up and now that i work worked mm. with them sort of in my field work i see the life of a musician is hardly music no it's running from one studio to another like figuring out gigs or figuring out oh this band politics figuring out okay what will work for the audience here what will work for the audience there and and that is the everyday labor of of you know, a, a young musician in the country now. And I'm mm. like, no, this will, this will ruin everything that I love about uh, music. And so, yeah. of course, I love being on stage, but most of all, I love being on stage because because I was secretly singing for like this person, or that person. Yeah. And so it was that relationship that was exciting rather than, you know, an imagination of a professional life. And so yeah. um, really my most fulfilling experiences in music has been through the friendships I made through them. A lot of them... Um, in, in college. And, yeah. and even though I wasn't so involved with the music sock, singing was yeah. an important part of my my time there. And yeah. um, I used to find the music sock, especially like the Indian Music Society, a little bit like rigid and sanitized. <laughs> so I just did it independently, I happened to be with the same people. But people I, I really felt very, very close to like mm-hmm. chalk and and puja rubin and yeah. and um, so many other people who i just felt so well looked after by when i sang with them mm. um and that's to me the most valuable thing about Got what it. music does in my life so. and
0: and you feel that in the classroom in in what way
1: um i feel that same riveting sort of sense of energy mm. um and i feel that the the structure that uh an academic conversation provides in which it's possible for you to unabashedly say what you think mm. um, you're not it's it's okay not to faff and do the warm up and the small talk and, yeah. and everyone is always at you know that top level and and that that back and forth within that sort of network of energy that sort of emerges in the classroom i find extremely exciting yeah. and it's a real thrill you know and i sound like such a nerd but like when i'm taking <laughs> notes and when i'm having a new idea i'm like shit this is this is so cool this is, this is yeah <laughs> the most wonderful thing in life yeah.
0: Um,
1: and so now i'm quite addicted to that kind of platform of expression and thought
0: i think and um, yeah and and yeah like I, I totally get the feeling i think there were certain classes when i was back in co- college where i would feel the same Where you're like oh i would have like three colored pens and i want to take like really good notes <laughs> and i would like like in some ways I, I i would say i i was a nerd and actually i do miss studying like there were some parts at least mm. some lectures I do really miss them. But here's what what my hot take is. I mean, it's not it's not a big hot take. But 95% of people listening to this are like, you know, what classroom did Ahona go to? Like, this doesn't happen in my classroom. I'm bloody bored in my classroom. So, tell, was it like a thing because of, of London? Was it a thing because of Ashoka? Did you see the same experience across Stephens? Or is it like, is it the case that you were just fortunate to go for these, you know, these, you know, these universities, which were very, very, you know conducive to such environments and it's probably not the case that you find this everywhere
1: no as in part of it is certainly that i've really had the privilege of a uh, the privilege of having some amazing amazing teachers that just worked out like for me and this is true even of my time in in college as in yeah As In in the same class in which other people were sometimes falling asleep. And of course, I was also falling asleep and like bunking to do some play practice and this and that. I don't pretend to be any diligent academic. But there were also real moments of genuine excitement that came from the things that I was being taught and and that I was responding to and and so like there were friendships in class that like, so for example uh, our classes with dr roy in the english department on like say shakespeare and othello and dr faustus yeah. and things so, you remember Shoini Shoini and i used yeah. to sit together in like that front middle and just be like <laughs> absorbing everything that that man uttered and like taking 100 notes and then going back and discussing it with him and that had its own place and and there was also yeah. a way in which this wasn't the most important thing happening me in college but um, I don't think it's a question of being able to go study abroad later etc etc I think it's just a form that I took to and uh, I'm drawn to Uh, but it is true that I won't have been able to study anthropology in India there aren't Anthropology departments in India. Now it's only now that say Ashoka is setting one up and quite an, yeah. a really, really good one that that. Yeah. Um, but I had to I had to leave India through dearly to get that training in that discipline.
0: So so talking about Ashoka, after you finished this whatever experience in London, you decided to come back and teach at Ashoka. Um and sort of now I think it was it's super cool because I think what you mentioned back at, at the start about the reason you got into English was because of your teacher. Uh, and like you lived off the energy of already teachers in university and was almost like you were going back to becoming a teacher now. Tell me why you decided like to to, to start teaching and yeah, at, at, yeah. at what point did you realize that, oh man, like I I, I just love teaching. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so in all honesty, as in I didn't join Ashoka after LSE primarily to teach. Mm. I joined then as a research and teaching fellow and I was then going to work as in just the fact that there was a startup university on the scene I found very very um, exciting and shit we're going to be able to really think through what this place is going to become but I went and I was supposed to do a research project and then there was this kind of teaching assistantship that I was supposed to do as a side um, just as a kind of requirement of the job but I kind of fell in love in class and I was so I felt so thrilled by how fast my brain was only working because Mm -hmm. I guess it has to do with like the size of an audience um, and certain modes of reception. When you find someone who you are able to bring yourself to invest in, you want to say that, shit, okay, this boy has understood this thing today. I want to make sure he understands this thing tomorrow. And hey, while I'm making him understand all of this stuff, it's really clarifying for me as well. Mm. Um, And so in a way, it was quite self-indulgent, this kind of addiction to, to teaching, because I found that I was thinking at my clearest when yeah. I was explaining it to someone,
0: yeah,
1: um, and um, and then I became quite attached to these students. Uh, first, the undergrads, and then I taught my own course to the YF in uh, for two years after that, and that yeah. was cool because they allowed me to kind of design my own syllabus, and so I taught yeah. a course in critical writing and anthropology. And writing is a cool thing to to teach, and it was a year-long program, so I really spent a lot of time with these people, and. Uh, independently as well as in class and it's also quite intimate in some ways yeah, Ruben, to be able to share the experience of, of arriving at a thought together and feeling mm. like shit I've been able to say what I wanted to say all along and, and yeah. been able to put the work that it takes to to make that and I've seen it happening yeah. in front of me and so that was very um, nurturing and it was quite an intense relationship that I shared uh, with my class as in initially yeah. I was teaching say like anthropology of gender and sexuality and i did this class on bdsm that shocked i think some of the sweet iit boys (laughs) but hopefully they learned something about sex and power and then i taught a class on cognitive anthropology and then later um when i started you know via this process of teaching really finding what my interests in anthropology were um Um, I started teaching what I wanted to read and thankfully Ashoka allowed me the space to do that and my students allowed me to do that. And so um, I started sort of focusing more on aesthetics, on cultural anthropology, on the idea of ethnography and what writing had to do with all of that. Sorry,
0: sorry. (laughs) What do you say? No, you say. No, no I, I was asking a very stupid question. I was like, you know, what was the bottom line of the BDSM class? <laughs> <laughs> what was the takeaway? What was the takeaway from the IT boys?
1: Yeah, I had <laughs> things they could look up at me. But they didn't really progress to uh, during the like some they could say the word sex actually by the end of that semester. I'm like, get away your hang-ups, bro. Uh, but I think as in that class was actually an anthropology of territory and colonialism kind of class where I was talking about how power comes to be invested in certain movements of body and certain bodies become territories that you assert your power over etc cetera, etc cetera. and the ways in which sex kind of rehearses those power dynamics is, is something that wow. can be studied and there's a lot of literature in the, sex, in the language of gender and sexuality that's beginning to look at this in all honesty, I, just, I thought it would be just a, at least like listen if I said this yeah. in the first class. Sex. But it worked out. <laughs> <Yeah. Boom. laughs>
0: What's your most favorite subject or topic like to teach? Which I'm like, hey, I don't know if you had to take one class and this was your last class. What, would that, uh-huh. what, what class would you take? I
1: don't know, man. I, I guess it would have right now. I'm most excited about fieldwork and, and ethnography and what sort of the doing and... Uh, the embodied labor of thought has to do with um, what ends up being written. So I guess right now, if you told me, that tomorrow is my last class," that's what I would um, teach. But I would, I'd find a way, or I'd end up, I'm sure, talking about music and aesthetics a little bit.
0: So, so <laughs> when, let's talk a little bit about the stuff you're doing right now. And and you've been like like dropping mentions. Everybody's already properly like curious about what the hell is she doing right now. So you mentioned that you you did about this teaching teaching gig for, for about two years, you said, at Ashoka. You got, to your, yeah, you got to teach your own course to the YLF, Young India Fellowship. YIF, Young Y-I-F India YLF Fellowship. Fellowship uh, <laughs> program, which is so awesome. And then you said you decided to go get a PhD. Talk to me about why you decided to get a PhD. Why, why just not continue teaching? Was it like important for you to get a PhD to continue teaching?
1: Um, I don't think I did it as a kind of occupational requirement. Mm. But by the end of my time teaching, I was also kind of craving to be on the other end. Mm. And 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 to be receiving someone's sort of uh, teaching,
0: yeah. Um,
1: and 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 so I was quite keen on going back to being a student. Um, I also by that point and really through teaching had begun to arrive at a set of thoughts that I had about anthropological literature and certain ideas that were being talked about. Um, at the same time, I was sort of going through. I think maybe a slight existential dilemma about what I guess everyone does at that, that age but my particular dilemma was um, so I didn't uh, become a musician mm. um, but if not a musician what am I yeah. um, and what is my relationship to this form that I'm so so connected to and draw so much of life from but yet can't bring myself to professionalize yeah.
0: um,
1: but you and never at the same time
0: to, you never wanted hmm, to be a musician. No,
1: no, I'd seen what the professional life of a musician was. And I knew there was something else that was drawing me to the form. And mm. and really, in all honesty, Ruben, my PhD and everything that's happened through it has been my way of trying to figure out what that other thing is. So just to go back to what I was saying, as in at the same time, I started reading the anthropological literature that was coming out about, say, Indian classical music. Yeah. And, and I was like, hey, this doesn't sound anything like the the form I grew up in and uh, you guys are missing out the best parts about about yeah. this and you know there's, there's a whole life of classical music that's outside of the kind of national politics within which it comes to be implicated there's such a rich kind of everyday life to it it's so influential to kind of within sort of domestic setups within just yeah. ordinary social relationships it has such a deep
0: relationship to time and, and yeah. rhythm um, and can you, can somewhat, you give me an example, like, like, I, like, all of this theoretically makes sense, but can, like, give me an example, which sort of encapsulates all what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to, I'll try to explain it um, through what I'm doing um, as my, as my fieldwork <laughs> and as the PhD that I'm trying to write. Yeah. So my PhD is, um, it kind of focuses on the question of what the everyday life of music is and how it's related to how the musical kind of relates to other forms of life that are not necessarily musical but tied to it. Um, And this came as you can by now see from quite a personal need to figure out what what my kind of real connection to this form was if it wasn't a professional one. and I think the secret guiding question I had when I think when I used to think about music and when I do now is other than what is the kind of everyday life of music, I, I'm always coming back to thinking about what it is about a piece of music that is able to move us sometimes what okay. what makes music moving yeah. um, and and I'm so I feel really glad that this is a genuine question I have about the world and something mm. that I'm willing to devote time and, and 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 thought to so that's secretly kind of powering my, uh, my work and um, it was a real challenge for me to be able to sort of systematically try to reconcile my relationship with music to this life as an academic that I kind of began to, to set up yeah. and and I asked myself, can I really write a, a coherent set of thoughts, not some like senti faff about, oh, I love music, it's so beautiful, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but like a well-researched set of thoughts that is conceptually grounded, empirically grounded in conversation with the work with the work of others. Can I formulate that set of thoughts about something that actually means so much to me? I mean, yeah. like, I I love my mother, but I can't now make a list of the reasons why I love her, or the reasons why I should love her, or the sometimes why I don't love her. It's just hard to do about something that means so right. much to you. And it's also important for that awareness to remain quite diffuse so that you can continue that relationship. right? And yeah. so my challenge with music in some senses was, hey, can I put in the everyday labor behind this question Yeah. Um, and systematically work within and towards something that I genuinely love so much.
0: Yeah. When you are starting off this journey, what what do you hope to achieve at the end of this journey? Just like a reconciliation on what your relationship with music is? Is that it? No,
1: I don't think it's it's as self indulgent as that, I hope. As in there is certainly a, a, a personal dimension to it. And and there's a way in which like what you personally want and what is important for the world is necessarily tied together. Um, I also want to contribute to a, a body of literature within aesthetics, for example, that um, seems to ignore certain aspects of, of this it. form of music. I want to see what sort of studying music outside of the concert hall is like, which is what my fieldwork kind of does. And just to kind of contextualize that. So like traditionally, like just traditionally definitions in philosophy of beauty mm. and what uh, an experience of beauty are uh, might be um has to do as in they say that in order to experience beauty your experience has to be necessarily divorced from any kind of utility or necessity and so if that experience is doing you some favors or helping you in some way to put it lightly um it's
0: not a real experience of
1: beauty and i'm like i'm like no man so
0: that, so that's probably why that's probably why the way they're like oh this art form is beautiful because like it has no utility value in my life so it, it can ah, be- so now
1: i know that you know this is my pure experience of beauty and i don't think it's like that man i don't think beauty presents itself to us always in this kind of exalted museum, art gallery kind of way. There are much smaller, more ordinary ways uh, in our everyday lives in which beauty occurs to us and and they are as life-giving as it gets in those moments. You don't have to sort of separate yourself from your ordinary struggles to experience Mm. uh, beauty, I think. Um, And so my study of sort of everyday aesthetic life, um, as in what I'm trying to do in my field work is, um, I work in... This sort of set of villages in rural West Bengal, sort of four and a half, five hours away from Calcutta in a district called Batura with these communities of paddy cultivators and potters. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try to kind of study what aesthetics or what aesthetic life is for them in relationship one to this music teacher who they all send their children to learn from. And at the same time to this sort of local shrine that has this sort of local deity uh, to whom Everyday sort of requests and manats and manchiks are, are, are made. Um, and so I'm trying to think about how spiritual and ex- aesthetic life kind of coexist within this this village. And one of the kind of um, puzzles that have presented themselves to me during the course of fieldwork is the question of why it is that these people have Aesthetic lives, at all right, aesthetics and art, etc., etc., supposed to be some great luxury based on whatever that you know, the Malthusian pyramid that we used to make can 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 when we were in school and stuff. Yeah. Once your basic needs are done, then you have time for you know, yeah. all of this frivolous aesthetic mm-hmm. stuff.
0: Um, sorry, if, if I can cut you in there, can, can you just broadly uh-huh. describe to me what you include in this term aesthetics? Is it the way you dress? Uh-huh. Like, what, what are the aesthetics?
1: very interesting so that's part of the question as an esthetic as in the reason one of the reasons i use aesthetics rather than just art is that it it needn't be a kind of cohesive form Mm. um i'm trying to figure it out but for me aesthetics has to do with um systems within which we kind of aspire for for just experience of sensory experiences of beauty Mm. um and i'm saying that it's not it's not only in this sort of concert hall or art gallery or museum in which you find it there are ways mm. in which people strive for that in their sort of ordinary regular lives and so of course a systematic learning of music might be one but mm. there's also this shrine that might offer a certain kind of aesthetic sustenance and how do we sort Got of it. put our fingers on that and so um, you know just to kind of tell you a little bit about what's going on with my field work as in yeah. so i'm saying I, one of my questions was doesn't why do these people have, have aesthetic lives at all and and so these are very very poor people way below yeah. the the poverty line and they all both communities i work with belong to kind of lower caste communities obc uh, communities and i've recently been studying you know their their hisab notebooks as in where they calculate mm-hmm. their monthly um, expenditure and, and and so i've been looking at what 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 kinds of expenditure happen within sort of contexts of, yeah. of frugality and and deprivation and and i'm like like Dada, you can barely eat three times a day. Why are you sending your child to learn Indian classical music? You mm. know what is it? What is? Why are you doing it? What What is it doing for you? And why is this so urgent in your life? And Dada. um, and of course, this isn't just. I won't. I'll never. I don't expect to get a straightforward answer to this. But it seems to me as though there is a kind of budgeted, um, systematic, economically figured out way in which people invest. In aesthetic and spiritual well-being, as a basic necessity, as important as, say, food or the maintenance of the house, and you know, I can see this quite clearly in the in the calculations that people are doing. Why is it that in a in a in a month in which your income has suddenly become one third, you are unwilling to bring your child out of music class? What is so important about that? This child has uh, no intention of growing up and becoming a musician. The child also knows that she doesn't have the talent to to kind of do this, and yet there's a there's a, so seriously yeah. but, that, but that's my point right as in music doesn't offer you only a professional life there's a kind of spiritual maintenance work and sustenance that it's also offering you that is just as important mm. uh, as any career could ever give you yeah. and so my question is, is in why are these people consistently conscientiously making room for music in their life again and again within yeah. contexts of need and where is this definition from philosophy saying that aesthetics has nothing to do with need
0: Mm, and so
1: that's the cool thing about fieldwork, you know it shows you within sort of everyday ordinary life how these questions can be re-understood
0: yeah and sort of what where is this eventually like culminating in like you've you've had you've posed this interesting question on why people are behaving this seems very irrational you know like as an economist would probably say it's very irrational way of of dealing but like sort of where does all of this where where do you hope for this to eventually conclude
1: precisely and 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 part of the part of the kind of argument is that it doesn't make economic sense, these decisions. And so there must be a set of objectives that it's fulfilling that aren't so apparent to us. And so it's going to take a discipline like anthropology and, and living with these people to see what forms of well-being and 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 sustenance these sort of roots are providing to these people's lives what what manza said though that typology of five kinds of capital that she laid out that was amazing so this is a kind of and she's right quality of life is not only based on an economic index there's so many yeah. other forms of well-being that sort of make that up and so i was a nodding vigorously when Mansa was saying that to you yeah. during the podcast i was like yes it's true. <laughs> Um, but the project I'm working on right now, um, just to kind of um, root it to the question of relevance yeah. that I think is what you're asking me, <laughs> is <laughs> and this is something I must grapple with. And why yeah. would I want to write something that's not relevant? And I think yeah. what I'm doing is. Um, but like the particular work that i'm doing right now has to do with studying and so indian classical music is organized in terms of a time theory so there are mm. certain rags or forms that yeah. are connected to say the morning evening dusk the dusk rag and so there's yeah. also a monsoon rag called malhar so i'm studying um, the grammar of indian classical music through this monsoon rag but alongside a rain making ritual that these communities conduct at the oh. local shrine Uh, to this deity called Khandarani. And this is an annual annual ritual that they conduct. And I'm trying to see what the sort of similar and divergent strategies with which people aspire for rain are across these two forms, one musical, one one ritual. And what is it to kind of take seriously that this community of musicians repeatedly sing uh, Malhar every um, monsoon with the the conviction that this is going to assist um, rain. Right? as in it's i don't want to i don't think of it as some kind of myths that they've come up with and are doing and are sort of yeah. um indulging in in order just to get by you know the uncertainties of life and stuff that's too yeah. that's too convenient i don't think it's very respectful to uh, the community i work with to distance yeah. them in that way and say okay these are your beliefs you live in some different world i live in some different world yeah. if i care enough about these people then i'm going to live with them long enough to understand why they do what they do and disagree where I will and agree where I will. But as of now, I'm trying to take that question
0: seriously and see where that leads me. Got it. That's so fascinating. Like, whenever I speak to people who are, like, deep in academia, I'm just, like, it's, like, and I'm sure, like, people who are, like, not in maybe, like, the the world I'm in, right, which is, like, tech and startups and probably look at me, like, oh, this is, like, like, a different planet, right? But when I hear stuff you're saying and I'm, like, wow like this is just a word which i just do not recognize and it's so fascinating to hear all of this um and also the like the gusto the enthusiasm which you share it oh man it's 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 so cool
1: yeah thank you but you know i don't want it to sound like it's from some other different planet it's from our planet only and my yeah. task is going to be able to my task is to be able to kind of write this in a way that, that is intelligible and enjoyable to anyone who, yeah. who wants to think about it. And that's really the difficulty of bringing the theoretical and the empirical together. Yeah. And anthropology yeah. kind of forces you to do that. So that's yeah. very, that's a fun thing about the, the discipline.
0: Well, well, what's been the hardest, hardest part of, of this journey of, of doing a PhD and doing all of this you know, fieldwork? What have you found most challenging? Um, well,
1: fieldwork? just given the current circumstances of the pandemic have been Mm. just logistically really really hard there's so much of work that just happens if you go just shove yourself there Uh, but that hasn't been that hasn't been possible um much this year um but i've been in touch of course with my interlocutors over the phone and sometimes like video call and a little bit back and forth but really not enough but i'm hoping that who knows when things will settle down but yeah. some way to find a way to kind of go. So te- logistically, this has been one of the struggles. Um, to tell the truth, doesn't the PhD has also been a kind of important step that I took alongside Kunal, right? As in yeah. My journey into anthropology was also something that I did with him. And yeah. it's been hard for me to kind of narrate my route into the discipline and academics and things without sort of touching base with the questions that we kind of had together. Yeah. Um, and our life together, and uh, so in a lot of ways, my journey to the PhD has been something that I took with him, and and I guess the remainder of it is something that is quite distinctly marked by his absence in my life. As in, we're not yeah. in touch right now, but but I hope we will be
0: at yeah. some point.
1: Yeah. Um, but college as well, as in college for me was 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 quite centrally um, yeah. rooted in my relationship with Kunal and um the other friendships that emerged around that the in my experience with theater and shakes off and yeah. so so many sort of crucial friendships that i made
0: uh yeah. through that. I, I think one thing which which i'm curious to know is like over these last 10 years and, and you keep touching back to like the, the experience you had in college i'm sure Aona today is not the same as Avona uh of, of 2010 right um or, or i'm sure she's not. She's probably a better version of, of, or a different no. version of a different different version. let's put it that way of, of yeah of 20, 2010 Anna. i'm curious to know like what has been like the biggest and i ask a lot of people this question uh, but i'm very curious to know what your biggest shift in belief has been over these last 10 years and what that means is basically like something you believe really really strongly back you know maybe when we knew you or at least the last time mm-hmm. i met you in person was yeah. like back in 2013 to, to now where it's like you no, know man
1: you bet me after that
0: oh of course of you. course we, we have met, yeah. just, for, for the pod for the pod <laughs> uh, yeah well, what, what's been like a big big shift in belief yeah like I, I i absolutely am 180 degrees on that on that on that belief
1: i don't know i don't know if i can um, i don't think it's easy to be able to put your finger on that
0: hmm. but
1: i know that um the ways in which i respond to certain situations or or people have kind of changed in their mood i guess i was even even when i was in college and college in some ways was a big breaking away from that self as in i went to an all-girls school and i used to swim competitively and so there was this <laughs> slightly aggressive oh no, <laughs> that existed yeah. um a little bit bitchy and like not something i'm <laughs> proud of at mm. all and i came to college and I found like there are 120,000 people who are much more brilliant than me and also so good. They yeah. are such nice people and I met so many women who had like no hang-ups in the world and were so relaxed and and so that was a big shift when I came to college and it really took the years of college and, and after to, to sort of make that ease in the world. I think uh, my own, I don't think I've ever actually been sort of ambitious professionally but, um, I guess I'm a little more comfortable with myself right now, mm. um not as um anxious to feel um, affirmed or mm. to be praised. That's something that I was struggling with at one point, as in like I was hooked onto like a certain quota of like audience applause, <laughs> I think for a while. um and then when you move from that sort of short term, burst of energy to a much more long drawn process of slowly slowly sort of making something then you you're forced to kind of stop relying on that that sort of applause so much and so that's I think quite an important I hope that that shift has happened
0: yeah um and
1: so I guess I I guess I would say that to
0: be honest in college I never thought you were the bitchy kind (laughs) like I think no I wasn't and
1: I don't think I actually am you know but certain like audiences bring that side out of you oh. i'm not <laughs> i'm <laughs> not
0: i also don't think i am so so maybe here's a very interesting question if somebody from back in school came and sort uh, of met who hadn't met ahona through college who hasn't had met ahona over the last 10 years came and met ahona today what do you think they would find the most unexpected thing are like oh my god what would you like that to be <laughs> <laughs>
1: shit, shit, this is really hard and um, you know in some ways this podcast has been important for me and, and because I usually you know Ruben in all honesty have such different modes for my different modes of friend and yeah. friends um, and they don't mix and I usually don't let them
0: well, what are the different modes
1: I don't know how to describe them but it's quite clear cut and I know that unconsciously even I'm making sure that you know I'm not chilling with two groups of people at the same time so my, my Ashoka friends are one my school friends are one mm. group my college friends are one group and there are certain groups that I feel was most more honest with than others. Yeah. Um, but I'm just thinking that this podcast, and I don't know who's actually going to listen to it, but yeah. it's been been—it's been such a relief in some ways to be able to suddenly really address mm. everyone at once, no? Yeah. And actually, I'm okay with, with whoever hears this. And uh, <laughs> I'm not so worried about, you know, I'm okay with being this self with everyone. So that yeah feeling of coherence i think is feeling quite valuable so thanks for that i guess really it's only conversations and a willing listener who isn't sort of presenting any form of judgment that allows you to to do that and so it's it's quite amazing that you're Doing these podcasts, and I began with thanking you, and I'm thanking you again, I guess, because because you know it's 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 very cool how how organized you're being. And I sent you this in a WhatsApp, mm. guys. He sent me a message before the talk saying, "Hey, there's certain kinds of earrings and hair that sometimes come in the way of the sound. See if you can look out of that." But it's it's great that you're being able to be so organized and systematic about something that is a hobby. Yeah. And so also brings with it the kind of ease and freedom that a hobby would, right? Yeah. And and, and I, that's that's amazing to be able to work towards something that is a passion. And I think maybe that's what I'm trying to do with the PhD as, as well, to make my life
0: my work yeah. rather
1: than separate, like, you know, this kind of work yeah. life. Like work-life
0: divide, I don't understand. I'm, really. I'm, to, I'm totally with you on that. Like for me, this work-life balance, so I'm sort of like torn by that, wherein I actually would not, like maybe 2017 version of Ruben would never be like work-life balance, so all bullshit. 2019 Ruben has sort of been like, yeah, like work-life balance shouldn't be a, like a big deal, but you can't make life about your work. Um, because there, I think that what happens is there are a lot of other aspects of life which you ignore, you know, like friends and relationships and family and health and all of that. So it shouldn't come at the cost of it. But I'm totally with you. Like I'm totally on the same path about your life. Like it has to be a work, right? Eventually, you're going to live for maybe like seventy years, eighty years, and you're going to go, right? And who cares about like what you did chill on a Sunday? Like you have, there has to be some meaning into all of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think yeah, for me, like even this podcast, it, like I, I clearly like work. But and what mm-hmm. that means is it's it's not always fun. Like it's hard to edit episodes, mm-hmm. it's hard to sort of schedule and you know do these conversations, but. But no, I, I just enjoy it. Like, and these conversations just make it worth it. So when I'm editing, and I'm like, oh god, I got to edit this episode, I'm just like, oh, when I listen to this conversation, I'm like, oh man, it's, like it's totally worth it. So, so I really appreciate you saying Like, thank you for all of this. Like, it really gives me. Oh, good. I, know,
1: it's, it's really genuinely amazing. As in, <laughs> it'll take me a while to step back from this conversation when I'm done and be like, fuck, did I really? See some of the things I did, but thank you for being able
0: to receive them. I and thank you for doing this. I think it's, it, it takes a lot of courage to actually like agree to it. I know people, you know, usually are like, oh, what are you going to talk about? Oh, these are such hard questions. What am I <laughs> going to say? Um, no, but I think I think uh, yeah. So so I know we're we're we are touching the hour. So you uh, always I, say that. No? Oh, we're yes, the hour. yes, are touching the hour. <laughs> uh, to to sort of come towards the the tail end of it, um, if you were to sort of look back and give two pieces of advice. To, to Ahona back in university, uh, what would that be? Mm. You know, that's hard. And I knew this was coming
1: because you <laughs> ask everyone this. Yeah. And if I think about it, sort of technically, there are things in college that I did that I would do anything to take back. Mm. Um, but I, I don't know if I would. Yeah, mm. I don't know. I don't know how to extract um, a piece of my life from the life that it led to yeah um but on the whole to force myself to answer this question i would i guess i'd tell myself to to care more about the conversations i was having the people i was around and to be able to to follow what my genuine instincts and interests were vis-a-vis them rather than trying to package like some you know Coherent who was constantly aware of what she needed to do and always having a great time. And mm. and I guess I, I, I would have asked myself to find ways in which I could express, say a sense of loss or a sense of anxiety or you know be able to say to people casually that hey, things are not working out and it's okay. Yeah. Um, we'll figure it out. Um, and I think I ended up pressurizing myself quite a bit by not allowing that to emerge even to myself um and in some ways sort of making sure that everything looked well from the outside
0: yeah and and for somebody maybe who's listening to this and probably is is going through the same thing like why should they do it because i'm sure you didn't do it for a reason like it was like the, the like you just, it probably was a, a, a big you know mountain to climb or it was just like very very like a hard thing to do but like what would have happened if you had if you had like acted on this advice and and the reason i asked that is maybe there are people who are exactly where you are, and like what happens at the end, at, at the other side of of this advice?
1: I don't know. And the funny thing is that there were people saying this to, giving me precisely this advice while I was doing all of this. No, but then you're not. Yeah. in a position to understand it in that way then then you have to i think i'm sounding like a real spiritual guru but you have <laughs> to go through the various thresholds that come after that to be able to yeah no, but seriously but for this to occur to you with a certain kind of clarity like it, it's difficult before that and i'm sure like i that's what time does no?
0: yeah <laughs> how, how are you thinking about the future what are you most excited about for say the next two three years
1: mm. I'm excited about seeing what this PhD actually turns into.
0: How, how long more um, for your PhD to, to sort of wrap up?
1: Oh, that's slightly controversial. I don't know. So I technically anthropology PhDs take about seven and a half years on mm. the average. Uh, it's a long PhD because it has this sort of period of fieldwork built into yeah. it. And I really want to do as much fieldwork as I can. Yeah. But once I'm back, um, I write my dissertation and to make things a little more difficult. I'm now doing a dual degree with the music department at Brown. Because I wanted to, so the reason I didn't, I took my project that was based quite directly on music to an anthropology department rather than a music department is that it's because I didn't want to want to study the theory of music, I wanted to study what it was doing in life. Um, But I also began to feel the need to to study sort of the canon of Western classical music as well so that I wasn't making superficial distinctions between oh this is Indian music and this is Western music and Western music has harmony and Indian music doesn't and there's a way in which concepts across these two sort of disciplines um, share strategies but also diverge so I wanted to figure that out so I'm also working in the music department so that's going to take me slightly longer. Okay. Uh, to figure out, but that's what's so, coming. So, so we're
0: well in twenty twenty one. When do we call you, Doctor Ahona? Are I don't know. <laughs>
1: give us, a,
0: give, give us a, like a like a feel. Twenty twenty five. No. Twenty <laughs> <Don't, don't, don't laughs> like
1: thirty. The university is asking us can you please send us a timeline of how you oh. anticipate to finish these two
0: so, You didn't. You didn't this podcast. <laughs> uh. <laughs> got
1: it, got I don't it. know. I'm imagining around 2024. I guess
0: I don't got
1: know. It. As long take. as I can, it's such a it's such a luxury to be a student. People are paying me money to sit and think and read and write. What yeah. else can I ask for?
0: That, yeah, that's. I also
1: to try to prolong this as much as I can. But <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a period at which I'm feeling like okay, I need to get done
0: with this now. Yeah.
1: When that happens, and I finish, and hopefully there'll be something else for me to do after. Yeah. Hopefully, it'll involve more anthropology and more teaching.
0: Yeah. So, so right now you're in India, but like, if not for the pandemic, you would have been based in, in, in the US.
1: No. So this year I was going to be back to do field work in any case. So I would have been living full time in the the village that I work in, uh, which is not too far away from home. But coming back to live at uh, home at uh, 29, Ruben, after <laughs> living on your own for some time has been no joke. Yeah. It's been quite hard yeah. to live with my parents and, and it's been hard for on both ends. They are yeah. also wondering. I, I think at one level, my parents didn't imagine like a full grown 29 year old unmarried woman sitting <laughs> and emerging from one bedroom every morning saying okay give me some coffee what is for lunch So
0: yeah, this wasn't was in their plan they're like you know nineteen, twenty, 20 pack them off give them a good education bye
1: yeah and then my stupid younger sister went and got married no and she's still on one full uh, schedule so she's doing everything like a good girl is supposed to do and here's this, you know, bichari older sister who now doesn't even have a boyfriend. What is she doing in life? And so like, should we look for someone for you? I'm like, no. Oh my God. <laughs> there are all these aunts who are so worried and concerned and, you know, asking now and then, you know, how are things? <laughs> I'm like, I'm chilling. I don't think I want a boyfriend. I'm fine. <laughs>
0: Yeah, hope ho- you can just send in the podcast. Like, all your questions answered in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. To, to sort of wrap up, I, I ask everybody if they have one question uh, for me. So, Auna, what, what question do you have for me? And, and first of all, thanks a ton for, like, sort of answering all those questions so patiently. I think it's been so, so fascinating mm-hmm. hearing your journey so far. And, like, I'm just so much smarter about anthropology and music. But uh, to, Ooh, to end... You know, what, 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 what question
1: No, I'm saying thank you and it's really like this podcast has been much more of a benefit to me than you <laughs> or anyone who listened to it, I'm sure. So really, really thank you for it. Um, what would I ask you? Um, the first, I'm going to turn into a kind of research exp- uh, question, Ruben. Okay. If you had to describe um, an experience in which you were moved by something, anything, doesn't have to be a piece of music also, how would you kind of describe it in a few sentences?
0: Hmm. If I had to be moved by something
1: like you've been, you've, it's something we all experience. You've been yeah. moved by something in your life before.
0: No? So Correct. if you,
1: if you were forced to describe what that experience was like, how would you describe it?
0: Like the experience, like the experience, which moved me or my experience after I got moved.
1: Both. I think they're connected. So like, mm. you could speak about both.
0: Oh, an experience, which moved me. That's a hard one. Mm. I can maybe talk about, like, I think a bunch of experiences have moved me uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe I can talk about um, like how, what, what I feel. So, so maybe with this podcast, right, like actually uh-huh. very recently, the message you sent me about how this podcast sort of, you know, created this entire thought process about convergence and divergence and you could relate to things much more. So that moved me a lot. I'm sort of just hearing your voice after so long Right? I I, I wait for those voice notes to come and I'm like, I haven't heard this voice for so long. So it's it's super (laughs) fascinating and it, and it sort of like moved me. And and what sort of the, the, like the feeling was just like, of like deep thought, when you just like, you were just thinking Uh on, you know, what was like trying to sort of understand what you are going through when you were saying that, and what kind of emotion and thought is going in your mind and really thinking about that. So there's a lot going on in my mind. Um, yeah. But I would describe it just as, as deep, deep thought. And mm. yeah, like just, yeah, like trying to sort of, like it's it maybe like a vivid imagination of, you know, like picturing like what, like was what going through your mind when you were saying this, what is going through your brain when you were saying this, my brain is trying to process all of that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I, I don't know if that makes like a lot of coherence. No,
1: that's beautiful, Ruben, thanks for that. And <laughs> you're so right, as in to be moved isn't a kind of, close-ended experience, right? As yeah. It provokes a certain set of thoughts and a set of curiosity, right? Yeah. Which to me, and curiosity to me is the greatest symptom of care and empathy mm. and a kind of willingness to join with whatever it is that has made you feel
0: moved. No? So yeah. thank
1: you for saying that. Yeah. It's really this, yeah, I feel the same way, I think.
0: That's a great thank question. Thank you for I, articulating I, I,
1: I it so beautifully.
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, when I get moved, I get really curious. And like, mm. it's vice versa. Like when I'm very curious, it's probably a sign that I've been moved. Like we usually feel like, moved yeah. about, oh, I saw a poor kid. I'm moved. But like, mm. I think when I get really curious, I'm like, that's probably moved me. Like, even if it's like a problem of it's like, I'm just like really, really curious. So yeah, spot on, spot
1: on. I, I, I totally, I totally resonate with that. Thank you. I've never formulated it like this before. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah.
0: No Thank problem. You. Awesome. So as we end, if people want to follow and keep up with what you're up to in life and your PhD, what's the best way for people to, to keep in touch or, or just to keep up with what you're up to?
1: Not my Facebook and Instagram because that's really curated and it doesn't look, my life doesn't look like that at all. I just put up photographs when I'm kind of looking nice or something or articles that actually the articles that I share or the music that I share I yeah. guess is kind of reflective of where I'm at at that point. But I don't know. I I'm call me, message me. <laughs>
0: That's the easiest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Ahona yeah. said just call her or, or messenger. And, uh, and yeah. I, I, are you still singing these days?
1: Yeah, I am. I yeah. am. So this is my. I have to find a way to keep
0: with music. No? So
1: I'm, I'm with music, but my form is academics. Mm. So I'm singing and I'm actually, I don't, I don't know, I don't really talk about this, but since I'm really saying everything in the world at this podcast, I better than say it, but I've been trying to think about what a kind of lecture demonstration kind of class uh, of, or sort of lecture would be like. And um, so, for example, in this study that I'm doing on this rag and the rainmaking ritual, is there a way of sort of weaving a performance of that rag in and out of that that lecture or that that conversation. Right. And so I'm sneakily finding ways to keep singing. And um, awesome. thankfully because of field work, I'm also kind of
0: really connected to musicians. Right. I'm singing with them all the time. So, so I wanna actually, before we end, so I remember I did this episode with, with Miyake, and I did one with Rahul Rajkova, Um And both of them, like, whatever, I sort of sequenced them as, as being as musicians. Uh, and I sort of plugged in a song at the end of it, uh, of some of the music they're doing. Now, I don't know if I can find your music online, but I remember, it isn't. it isn't. I know a ton of people who like would love listening to you, and I know this is slightly weird, but I'm going to ask nonetheless. <laughs> do you mind maybe like singing for a little bit for people just to remember, or oh, any have the last vivid memory of Ahoda. Do you mind singing something, given that yeah, as a as a way to like reconnect with this entire singing thing? that you doing? <laughs> yeah, of
1: course. <laughs> Um, I'm really glad you asked because, um, I've been thinking of a song that we used to sing, um, in college a lot. And Chuck was a part of it and Lewis was a part of it. Leon was a part of it. Puja, Rubin were a part of it. And remember at, at like the music farewell, yeah. we'd sung uh, Nindiare. Oh, um, yes. So maybe I'll sing a little bit of that. And, and that's my way of saying hello and giving like
0: big hugs to everyone. Oh, who was a part that, of it. That was such a beautiful song. Uh, oh man! So I'm I'm going to go on mute because I'm not going to ruin this, uh, and it's over to you, Anna. Sing a little bit.
1: Hmm. Jaganu panti pyare pyare tera sapne bole nind bari. आँखों से तेरी चुपके से कहते रहे सो जा रे सो जा रे सपनों में खो जा रे Nindi Nindi Nindi
0: Nindiare Oh, thank you so much for doing that. I remember the version where you'll mash this up with Sleeping Child.
1: I was thinking that in my head and missing. Oh, I do that so
0: much. I, I really hope you guys can maybe collaborate. And rec- I think I remember saying to Chuck this in university, wherein you guys should legitimately record this in like, like yeah, like just record it and put it up on YouTube. I think it would wow. be so fantastic. I it think if it, it Pooja Ruben listen to this podcast, I'm first going to send it to like Chuck. He's going to listen to it. But <laughs> I, I really think. You guys should just record this song.
1: I hope we do. And even if the song is an excuse to kind of be with these people again, it would be totally worth
0: it. Yeah. Logistically, it might be a challenge, but I still think you guys should make it up. <laughs> awesome. So I think that good, is a wrap.
1: Thank you. Thanks
0: thanks, and done for doing Ahana. It was so, so good. So turns out that these guys actually did record that song. Ahana was kind enough to send me a YouTube link of the recording which was done seven years ago. It has Ahona, Ruben, Puja, Leon, Arjun, and Louis playing the song. And that's what I'll leave you guys with. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can now buy me a coffee. Link in the show notes below. A big thank you to Ahona for singing. I think it's the first time it happened on the podcast. I upload new episodes every Friday, and I'll see you in the next one.